Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language. So take care of yourself while you're listening. It's October 2018, and the trial of David Little is finally getting underway in Palmerston North, seven years after Brett Hall's disappearance and four years after David Little was arrested. David Owen Little, you are charged that on the 27th day of May 2011 at Whanganui murdered Brett and Roy Hall. How do you plead, guilty or not guilty? But as British lawyer Alex McBride says, trials are like sheep. They keep coming up with novel and unusual ways to die. In this one, it's death by bombshell. Five days into the trial, the jury file into the courtroom, and the judge says this. Morning, Mr. Foreman, members of the jury. It's not a very happy looking courtroom, I'm afraid. Um, it's a regret that I have to advise you that the trial cannot proceed. Um, on Tuesday morning, the police, for the first time, um, provided further information that should have been disclosed a long time ago. Um, the defence need to make inquiries about it, and they're entitled to have that time. That information that the police handed over to the defence a week into the trial, it was evidence suggesting that someone saw the murder happening, and the murderer wasn't David Little. It's obviously incredibly frustrating for everyone. The trial would have to be rescheduled with a different jury. So it's left to me now to make formally make an order declaring a mistrial, and that means that you're discharged from your duties. I wish I could say this was a huge surprise, but it wasn't, not really. Because this wasn't the first time in this case that police had failed to hand over important information till the last minute, or the second time, or the third. In fact, two earlier trial dates had to be abandoned because of failures of police disclosure. One judge called the disclosure failures in this case alarming. Another said they were a disgrace. The Court of Appeal called them egregious and an affront to the administration of justice. The defence said these failures were so bad the whole prosecution should be stopped for good. I'm Stephen Price, and this is Mr Little Meets Mr Big, a podcast about where the police can invent a story to get to the truth about a murder. In this episode, we're going to look behind the scenes of a murder prosecution at a process called criminal disclosure. We're going to see some astonishing lapses by the police. In the end, we'll have to ask, can David Little even get a fair trial? Expecting prosecutors to hand over material that harms their case is like expecting the Empire to hand over the plans of the Death Star. <laughs> it's disclosurable, sir. But you didn't disclose it, so I'm trying to understand what you did. It was a matter of fact, this has been happening constantly in this case, hasn't it? That's a fact.
Here's how criminal disclosure is supposed to work. Police are supposed to give the defence all their relevant information. The evidence they plan to use, police interviews and inquiries, expert reports, information from their informants, including anything that might help show the defendant didn't do it. They're supposed to play fair. That might seem like common sense, but as a legal rule, it came surprisingly late in the day. It really only bedded into our legal system after a big case in 1988, and wasn't cemented in place until the Criminal Disclosure Act was passed in 2008. Anyway, all up, there were more than 25 hearings over the four years leading up to David Little's first trial, as well as a lot of administrative teleconferences. They dealt with things like bail, trial venue, adjournments, and the admissibility of various pieces of evidence, including the Mr Big recordings. But nine of the hearings were about police disclosure. Let me tell you about some of those. I'll go through it roughly in the order it happened, but I'll be taking some bits of sound from various hearings, and even the final trial itself. Here's defence lawyer Christopher Stevenson cross-examining Detective Sergeant John Gleeson about the reasons for the disclosure rules. Detective Sergeant Gleeson was in charge of managing the police file in the Brett Hall investigation, though he's not with the police anymore. We'll be hearing quite a lot from him over the next few episodes. This process of disclosure is an integral component of the right to a fair trial. That's right. And um, full disclosure we could think of it as an element of natural justice. Natural justice, the idea you're accusing somebody of something, you've got some relevant information, you turn it over, right? I agree. Now, you can't have a fair trial, can you, um, if uh, material, disclosure, evidence, information, pointing away from a suspect, let's say David Little, pointing away from that person, is not turned over. That's fair comment. The police are allowed to hold some things back, such as legal advice and the identity of some police informants, but they have to tell the defence that they're doing it and explain why. Police are supposed to do this in a big list that they hand over early in the prosecution. The defence can then argue, in court if necessary, that they should be shown the things the police want to hold back. The courts will order them turned over if it's in the public interest, meaning so important to the defence that it outweighs the police's reason for wanting to hold it back. This process of police disclosure is vital to the defence. It lets them prepare for trial properly, so the trial can be fair and more likely to reach the truth, and not a prosecution ambush. It lets the defence examine the police investigation. They look for leads and evidence the police followed that pointed away from the defendant, and they might create a doubt about guilt. The defence might follow up on those, though usually the defence has a lot fewer resources than the Crown, It doesn't have a workforce of investigators, a network of informants, special powers to get search and interception warrants, or ready access to the public and the media to help out. That's another reason why police disclosure is so important. And the defence typically begins its task late, right? Police begin with the investigation, somebody's charged, and the defence comes in much later, correct? Uh, Post the arrest, yes. The police are supposed to follow all reasonable leads, So this should give the defence a head start. You agree with the general proposition during an investigation, police should pursue all reasonable lines of inquiry? Reasonable, correct. Whether these point towards or away from the suspect, right? Correct. This is pretty interesting, I think. It means that the defence often rely on the police investigation. They need the police to keep an open mind, chase down open leads, follow up on all the possibilities. And the police are supposed to do that. Obviously, this creates a bit of tension for an investigation. Police want to get to the bottom of it, but every lead could be ammunition for the defence. 
What's more, the police know defence lawyers will comb over everything they turn over to look for weaknesses and flaws. What did the police miss? What evidence is weak? Might the police experts have got it wrong? Does that create a doubt? And if there are enough flaws, the defence can say to the jury, this is an example of tunnel vision. The police convinced themselves of our guy's guilt early and wrongly. They zeroed in on anything that might show he did it. They stopped looking for things that might show he didn't. In David Little's case, that's exactly what the defence is saying. The police had tunnel vision. They didn't properly chase down all the lines of inquiry. And that made it almost impossible for the defence to do it years later, when all the leads were cold. Fair to say, defence lawyers as a breed are sceptical about whether police always turn over everything they should. Christopher Stevenson put it to me this way. Expecting uh, prosecutors to hand over material that harms or undermines their case is like expecting the Empire to hand over the plans of the Death Star to the Rebel Alliance. Police gave the defence their list of relevant information in 2014. But it turns out it was quite a lot missing or held back. For one thing, police refused to turn over all the recordings or transcripts of the Mr Big Sting. A judge ordered the police to hand them over. Even then the police resisted. Justice Simon France found it hard to believe. He said it was obvious they had to be given to the defence. Eventually they were. Then the defence realised there were other things missing from the undercover operation. Where were the planning and organisation files? But the police assured them they'd been given everything. The defence team kept pressing. And lucky they did, because two months later the police handed over more than a thousand pages relating to the undercover investigation. The undercover team had never told anyone about these documents, including Detective Sergeant Gleeson, who was managing police disclosure. So this stuff wasn't on the original list. Judicial eyebrows were raised. Justice France commented on the apparent willingness of some police officers to mislead other officers about material that exists, even when that means misleading the prosecution and the court. The files were turned over, but the police had blacked out big parts of them. So back to court went the defence. The court appointed a Queen's counsel, a senior lawyer, to help sort out whether those redactions were justified. Turns out lots of them weren't, and they were handed over too. Police also failed to tell the defence or court about an expert report they had. It said if Brett Hall's remains were buried where David Little told Mr Big they were, police searchers would have found them. Then there were the notebooks. Notebooks are where police write up their inquiries and interviews. They're the nuts and bolts of the investigation. It's a no-brainer. They're usually among the first things to be disclosed. And they were. In early 2017, police told Justice Helen Cull that they'd given all the notebooks to the defence. Here's Christopher Stevenson asking Detective Sergeant Gleeson about it in court. He reminded Detective Sergeant Gleeson that he'd been asked in an earlier hearing whether all the police notebooks had been provided. Yeah, your answer was yes, and you were asked, that's an assurance, and you said yes. Yes. Yeah, and just after that you disclosed about another 500 pages of notebook entries. Right? Yes. Yeah. I found some more. 599 pages more, actually. And there were still some other notebooks missing. Now, this has been ongoing, hasn't it? A constant drip feed of material that should have been turned over to the defence, including notebook entries, right? It would have been ideal to have it done earlier, yep. I'm not asking if it was ideal. As a matter of fact, this has been happening constantly in this case, hasn't it? That's a fact. And in fact, as we're going to see, some of the notebook entries that hadn't been disclosed, even right up until the 2018 trial, 
were from Detective Sergeant Gleason's own notebooks. All of these problems meant that the scheduled trial in 2016 had to be abandoned and a new date set. But the disclosure problems continued. In July 2017, after repeated requests from the defence, police turned over 68 CCTV files for the first time. And then in August, police handed over cell phone polling data showing where various suspects' phones were during Brett's disappearance. This included a reconstruction of David Little's movements. The next month, police were handing over still more things they'd overlooked, a collection of 2011 job sheets, which are police memos about significant developments, and also some statements and records of some of their inquiries. And if all that isn't enough to make you queasy, wait for what comes next. The defence were finding out that police were holding back information they'd got from their informants. Informants who told police that Brett Hall was killed by someone other than David Little. By now, the defence were wondering if they were getting shortchanged by police about something else. Did police get any tip-offs about Brett Hall's disappearance, pointing to anyone else as the killer? Anything on the police's intelligence database? They wrote to police several times about this, and I have to say, this was terrific defence work. Here's Christopher Stevenson reading one of his letters to Detective Sergeant Gleeson. I've already inquired as to whether or not there was any further disclosure regarding investigation into other suspects, and you have advised me there is not. Okay? Correct. So the police were telling the defence in 2017 that they didn't have anything else from any informants. You know where this is going. The defence pressed again and police found a job sheet they'd written up back in March 2014, more than three years earlier. Actually, this was just a week before the police missed a big sting on David Little started. So, about the same time, a man had come into a police station at Hamilton and said he had information about Brett Hall. He seemed to know quite a lot. He knew Brett had gang connections. He knew Brett had bought land near Whanganui. He knew Brett had buried drugs there in some buckets. He said Brett had told his mate where he buried them. This mate is a man I'm going to be calling Mr Pike, since he has name suppression. As we'll see, there's evidence that Brett and Mr Pike were not just friends. They were involved in drug dealing together. Mr Pike's important because the defence theory is that it was Mr Pike and his crew who killed Brett Hall as part of their drug dealing. Anyway, the man who came into the Hamilton police station said Mr Pike double-crossed Brett. He dug up Brett's drugs, $200,000 worth of drugs, and gave them to a gang leader. Then according to the man in Hamilton, Mr Pike couldn't pay Brett back, and so he, and I'm quoting here, had several people clean up the job by getting rid of Brett. The police at Hamilton wrote this down on a job sheet, which I'll call the Hamilton job sheet. Then they emailed it to Detective Sergeant Gleeson. Now remember, that was back in 2014. As it happens, Detective Sergeant Gleeson was out of the country at the time, but he got the email when he arrived back a few months later. He said he saw the email and turned it over to the defence with some redactions, but he didn't see the Hamilton job sheet that was attached to it, so he didn't turn that over. He said he was just finding out about the Mr Big operation, which was coming to a head, so he must have overlooked it in all the excitement. But a copy of the job sheet had been stored on the police's database of informants. And when the defence team asked for a search of the database, out it popped. This was in 2017, three years after the job sheet had been created. As the judge said later, the police should have really checked that database in the first place. Still, the defence were curious. Why didn't the prosecution turn over the job sheet in 2014? After all, they'd provided the covering email. They asked, 
when did Detective Sergeant Gleeson first see the job sheet? And Detective Sergeant Gleeson told the defence, this is the first time I've seen it. I didn't see it when I got the email. And if we'd accepted your word there, that would have been the end of matters, right? That's right. Christopher Stevenson describes what he did next. What I did then, when you said this is the first time I've seen it, I applied to the court for an order for an electronic footprint to be made of that document so we could see movement of that document, right, within uh, the police um, IT system, right? Correct. Yeah. And within a day of, you, of me doing that, right, you then advised you had seen it. I went and did a, a search on the, my um, emails. So the defence gets a court order making the police search their computer trail to see who had accessed the job sheet. And before they could finish that, Detective Sergeant Gleeson comes back and says, oh, I checked my old emails and I must have seen the job sheet when I got back from overseas because I started making inquiries about it. In fact, I sent or received eight emails about it. i completely forgotten about them. There's no getting past it. This looks bad. Did Detective Sergeant Gleeson lie? Justice France understood why the defence would think so. After all, the job sheet dovetailed with the defence theory that Brett was killed by Mr Pike and his crew, and not by David Little. The judge agreed this looked somewhat alarming, but he was prepared to believe that Detective Sergeant Gleeson had simply forgotten about it. That was partly because the police didn't really have anything to gain by hiding the Hamilton job sheet. They'd already investigated similar information that had been provided by the Hamilton guy's father and reached a dead end. Still, Justice France said there'd been a fundamental failure of an adequate system and proper resourcing. He said the defence shouldn't have had to press for this stuff and was worried about the police's false assurances, including under oath to the court. He said, The prosecution's services as a whole should be embarrassed by what has happened. The family of the victim, the public and the court deserve better. You'd think maybe the defendant also deserved better. Anyway, the defence asked the judge to stop the whole prosecution but he didn't. Instead, he put off the trial again and ordered an audit of the disclosure to be carried out by different police officers. This was to, quote, generate sufficient confidence that a fair trial can occur next year, end quote. I've never heard of a court-ordered disclosure audit before. It's a big deal. That decision came out in October 2017. The judge hoped the audit would get things back on track, but it didn't. Believe it or not, there was worse to come. The audit was finished by January 2018 and turned up another 600 pages of documents. Those included a pile of text messages and hundreds more pages of police notebook entries. And not just any old police notebooks. These were the notebooks of the head of the original 2011 murder inquiry, Detective Inspector David Kirby and his deputy. In fact, police had deliberately not even told the defence about those notebooks. Now they were handed over, but 99% redacted. Now remember, police are entitled to make redactions when they can point to a justification in the Criminal Disclosure Act. Here they were saying that those notebooks were almost entirely administrative and contained no first-hand information. There's a bit of wiggle room about how that law works, but it's fair to say that police interpreted the law in a way that gave them a lot of room to hold things back. But police hadn't redacted everything in Detective Inspector Kirby's notebook and one of the unredacted passages caught the defence team's eye. It was a bit cryptic, 
came from August 2011, only a few months after Brett disappeared. It said, It was payback for a rip-off for a clan lab, meaning a clandestine drug lab. The notebook entry goes on to talk about a body being disposed of and identifies some people involved. But there was a passage at the beginning that was blacked out. The defence asked to see it. When the judge saw it, he said it was indefensible for the police to have blacked it out, causing him to be deeply troubled. And when I tell you what it is, you'll see why. The blacked out bit said that someone, a person who was named in the notebook, and here's the quote, has been spouting off that he's the offender for your victim up there. So the head of the police investigation wrote down that he'd been told someone had been boasting about killing Brett Hall himself. And the police didn't give the defence the notebook, or even tell him about it. And when they did, they redacted this passage. And when they provided the passage, they redacted the name of the person doing the boasting. Again, the defence objected. Finally, two weeks before the trial, the police turned over the name of the person who was supposedly boasting about killing Brett. It was a man I'll call Mr Marlin. He was involved in drugs. More importantly, he was a close friend of Mr Pike. He was part of Mr Pike's crew. The notebook entry also refers to another friend of Mr Pike's, who I'll call Mr Trevally. You can see how that seems to fit with the Hamilton job sheet that said Mr Pike had his people kill Brett over a drug debt. It also seems to fit with information from another police informant. To be fair, this was information that had been turned over to the defence. That informant told police Mr Trevally had admitted that he and Mr Marlin were involved in Brett's death. This all seems kind of a big deal. We're starting to get a window on what the defence will look like, and it seems there might be something in it. Still, if your head is spinning now, don't worry too much about it. I'll go over this again when we get to the trial. For now, all you really need to know is that there was information from three police informants that pointed to Mr Pike and his associates killing Brett, and two of those bits of information had not been turned over by police. Christopher Stevenson asked Detective Inspector Kirby about it. Do you accept that your notebooks were deliberately not disclosed? I accept that part of my notebooks were deliberately not disclosed. That undisclosed part would be 99% of them. And the reason given for all those redactions was that they were just administrative and contained no first-hand information. And the bit that wasn't disclosed included relevant information significant to the defence, didn't it? Yes, but it also, for me, created a safety issue for the informant due to the content of that information. What he's saying is that if the defence finds out that Mr Marlin has been spouting off about killing Brett, of course they'll want to use that in the trial. And then Mr Marlin would probably hear about it. And he'll think, now, who did I say that to? And if it was only one or two people have a good idea of who narked on him and that might not be very healthy for the informant because as Detective Inspector Kirby pointed out Mr Marlin was a dangerous man if he found out who narked on him we might be dealing with another homicide what's more if other informants hear about that it might stop them coming to the police with valuable information it is a really um, fraught situation with regards to disclosing of notebooks particularly when people have sort of information and informants particularly when they've given it to us on the grounds of, of anonymity or confidentiality. 
it's pretty clear Detective Inspector Kirby still thinks this information shouldn't have been shown to the defence. And as I've said, the law lets police hold back this sort of information sometimes. But ultimately, it wasn't Detective Inspector Kirby's call. That was the job of the audit team. In a different hearing, Justice Simon France asked Detective Sergeant Grayson Joins, who was part of that audit team, why police made those redactions. Well, here you have someone who, on the information, is admitting to the killing. That someone not being the person accused with it. Agreed? Yes, sir. Okay, so what do you, how do you factor that into your decision? It's disclosurable, sir. But you didn't disclose it, so I'm trying to understand what you did. Detective Sergeant Joins pointed out that it might give away the identity of the police informant. And if you thought it might disclose the identity of the informant, that would be it. You would then redact it. At that stage, I would, sir, yes. I would. Well, uh, what do you mean at that stage? Because what I would, stage is there? Well, the next stage then would be the challenge of whether it should have been redacted or not. How would anyone know? In other words, if you're going to redact some information, how will the defence know it's important enough to take it to court? It doesn't help that the reason the police gave for redacting information was just that it was administrative and didn't contain anything new. That was wrong. But Detective Sergeant Joins says maybe you could work out the information was significant by reading the context. To be fair, that's just what the defence did. Okay. And do you ever think of taking advice on this from, for example, the Crown Solicitor? Uh, yes, we do often, sir. But not on this case? I did not, no. You can see, can't you, why, why some of us may think that's a pretty stunning redaction? I can only assure the court, sir, under oath that it wasn't done for any other reason other than to protect whoever Detective Inspector Kirby had been dealing with. The judge later accepted that it wasn't done in bad faith, but he was very worried that the police didn't seem to understand the law or to take advice on it. Even though they were working through a court-ordered audit of their disclosure after messing it up before, and knew they had to get it 100% right. The judge also said that if police thought Mr Marlin was a dangerous man, so dangerous that he might kill an informant who narked on him, they played both ways. Perhaps he was dangerous enough to kill Brett. Well, at least the audit had done the trick, you might think. Flushed out the rest of the undisclosed information. But you'd be wrong. Months after the audit, and just a month before the trial, the police were still sheepishly disclosing new things to the defence. One was one of the notebooks of a police officer who was heavily involved in the original investigation. The defence again asked the court to stop the trial for good. How could they ever be sure they were getting all the information they needed for a fair trial? The judge said, until now, he didn't think it possible he would ever seriously consider staying a murder prosecution. That is, calling it off. But he said this case genuinely raised that possibility. Still, in the end, he was confident there could still be a fair trial. The disclosure, while far too slow, seemed now to be exhaustive. Police hadn't shirked from their ongoing disclosure obligations, even though it was embarrassing. The public interest in a murder trial was high. The trial could go ahead. It was October 2018. Now we're back to the beginning of this episode. 
The trial gets underway, and right at the start of the second week, wham, the bombshell. The police had found more undisclosed information, and it was yet another piece of evidence pointing away from David Little that was not disclosed by the police. How on earth did it come to light? This takes a bit of explaining. Detective Sergeant Gleeson says that the weekend after the first week of trial, he was preparing to give evidence, looking at the investigation file, where his notebooks had been copied, and he noticed something strange. And it became very apparent to me that material was missing. There were too few pages from his notebooks, only 35. He was sure there were more pages than that. The notes from some of his inquiries weren't there. He went back to his actual notebooks and found that only a fraction had been copied over into the investigation file and given to the defence. Now, Detective Sergeant Gleeson was in charge of file management and disclosure, but he wasn't the one who copied the notebooks and put the copies on the investigation file. That was done by other staff. True. I wouldn't have expected them to select what to copy. It should have all been copied. I cannot understand why those pages aren't in there. But Detective Sergeant Gleeson did number the copied pages. Just um, if you open up to page one, um, you'll see that it's marked one of 35. Correct. And it's got your stamp on there. That's, that I put that there, correct? You put that there. And page number. Yeah, that was my next question. So the, the pages are marked right through to 35 of 35, and, and, and that's been done by you. Correct. Right? So someone else copied the pages from Detective Sergeant Gleeson's notebook, then gave them to him. I page-numbered them, correct. They were handed to me after being copied. The first page was marked 1 of 35. The second one is 2 of 35, and so on, all the way up to 35 of 35. But Detective Sergeant Gleeson had two notebooks that needed to be copied. The judge wondered... Did you at least have a suspicion prior to looking at those notebooks, that you hadn't disclosed the stuff. Not at all. Just how much was missing? The judge asked Detective Sergeant Gleeson to compare the 35 pages of what was disclosed with what was in his actual notebooks. Page 1 of 35, that's the first of the pages that were disclosed, was dated 3 June 2011. That's just after the police were called to start looking for bread. Page 2 of 35 was dated 18 November, about five months later. How did that compare with the actual notebook? Your 1 of 35 is 3 June. Can you find that in your notebook for me? Oh. Have that here on it. What's the next page? 4th of June 2011. 4th of June? Yep, following day. So that 4th of June entry he's looking at, that's the first page from his actual notebooks that wasn't turned over to the defence. And can you count how many pages there are between 3 June and 18 November for me? It takes Detective Sergeant Gleeson nearly two minutes to count all the pages in between the page he numbered 1 of 35 in the stack that was disclosed to the defence and the page he numbered 2 of 35. In between were the pages the defence would have had no inkling existed. 155, Your Honour. Thank you. Obviously, that raises another question. Mr Stevenson's asking you, don't you think it misleading that your consecutive numbering suggests to Defence Counsel that these are all the pages? They're not all the pages. But you I can, can see understand. how someone looking at it Definitely, would think they yeah, were. Yeah. I get you. Yeah. 
and another question. Can you explain to me when you numbered them yeah. all those years ago, you didn't say 3 June, 18 November, what's going on here? I'd numbered them, Your Honour. I wasn't checking them, clearly. Doesn't that seem extraordinary, really, seeing you're in charge of the file and it's your disclosure? I can understand that. So, so I can be sure that, that when this disclosure was done, you went through and numbered them with the gaps, and yet in 2018, when you came to look at it at trial, that same gap went off like a light bulb for you. Like a bomb. You can see that's, that's incredibly puzzling, can't you? Yes, you're right. I didn't go off like a bomb when you did the disclosure. I wasn't paying that much attention to them when I numbered those. So, what was in the missing pages? The most explosive thing was about a text message received by Damien, Brett's son. It was from an acquaintance of Damien's, and it was about Brett's murder. And that's the text in which his mate is saying um, there's a witness um, to his father's murder and he was rolled in relation to a drug deal gone wrong, effectively, isn't it? His mate Ben Payne said he knew somebody who alleged that, yeah. Bear with me here, this part is a bit twisty. The text was from a guy called Ben. He'd been talking to a mate called Phil. Phil told him what he'd heard at a party from a friend called Jesse. Jesse was a hunter. Apparently, he said he'd been up in the woods and saw Brett getting killed over a drug deal. But he was frightened and didn't want to say anything more. Well, that's what Ben texted Damien. Based on what he said, Phil said, Jesse had told him at a party. Detective Sergeant Gleeson then talked to Ben and Phil, who more or less verified that's what they'd heard, and then to Jesse, who agreed he was a hunter, but said he hadn't said anything like that, and it wasn't true. Detective Sergeant Gleeson left it there. There didn't seem to be anything in it. He didn't even write up a job sheet. So, was this evidence of Brett's murder? Or some sort of rumour that got out of hand? Had Detective Sergeant Gleeson checked it out properly? We'll have to wait for the next trial to explore those questions because the judge stopped this one. He pointed out that the defence was hearing for the first time about evidence that police had sat on for six years and which said that someone actually saw a person other than Mr Little kill Mr Hall. He wasn't inclined to think it was very strong evidence, but he also thought Detective Sergeant Gleeson's investigation was cursory and the defence had to be given time to check it out themselves. So for those keeping score, David Little's trial was initially set down for 2016, but that didn't go ahead for a range of reasons. Then two trial dates in 2017 had to be put off because of failures of police disclosure. And now in 2018, a trial that actually got started had to be stopped, again because of disclosure problems. By this stage, David Little had spent two years remanded in prison, and the two years since, out on bail. In light of these problems with Detective Sergeant Gleeson's notebook, the defence have another crack at persuading the judge that having another trial cannot be fair and it should not go ahead. Let's take a time out and look at all this stuff together. There's the Hamilton memo, suggesting Mr Pike had Brett killed, the Kirby notebook, saying Mr Pike's friend had been spouting off about killing Brett, the missing pages from Detective Sergeant Gleeson's notebook about a hunter who might have seen Brett being killed in a drug standoff, and the police's failure to properly follow up on all these leads. Is it any wonder the defence story about this is that the police were suffering from tunnel vision? 
that they were so sure that David Little was their man that they just didn't think the other stuff really mattered? It's a fair question, and we'll look at it again later in the series. But for now, it's worth bearing in mind a few things. The first thing is, the police did investigate the other suspects we've been talking about, such as Mr Pike, Mr Marlin and Mr Trevelli, though maybe not as rigorously as the defence would have liked. Second, the police would say that a lot of these leads didn't emerge until quite a long time after Brett disappeared. A text message to Damien about the hunter came in about 18 months after Brett went missing. The Hamilton job sheet didn't turn up for another 18 months, just as the Mr Big operation was coming to a head. All these pieces of information were coming in quite late. It was difficult to do much about them years after Brett went missing. And third, as the judge pointed out, it's hard to accuse the police of tunnel vision after June 2014... That's when David Little confessed at the end of the Mr Big Sting. When there's a confession, police can be forgiven for not chasing other leads very hard. Still, that doesn't explain all the disclosure failures. Now, police accepted they'd made a hash of disclosure. But you can tell a story about these failures that doesn't have anything to do with tunnel vision. This plainly wasn't a run-of-the-mill investigation. There were a lot of moving parts. There were three phases, the search, the investigation, and the Mr Big Sting, all with different sets of files. There was a lot of paperwork. Here's Crown Prosecutor Michelle Wilkinson-Smith asking Detective Sergeant Gleeson about it. What sort of volume of disclosure was provided to the defence in this case? By the time I uh, left, it would have been close to about 35,000, 40,000 pages. The search was one of the biggest ever conducted, and there were a lot of police involved in the search and the investigation. Many of them were from out of town. Investigation personnel kept changing, and back then... The notebook rules are a bit loose. They come on to the inquiry, their notebooks are to be left with us. That didn't always happen. Let's not forget there was no arrest for three years. That made it harder to assemble all the relevant material from the search and the investigation back in 2011. And big changes in the Whanganui police station didn't help. Typists were transferred, there was a new scanning machine, electronic record-keeping practices changed, the computer system was updated. Technology morphed and I had to try and fit all this in. And I think, possibly, that's where some of the problems were caused. Things were genuinely overlooked, and police did want to protect their undercover secrets and their confidential sources. The judge ultimately didn't find they were being dishonest. If they'd wanted to sabotage the defence case, they could have held back a lot more, as Crown Prosecutor Michelle Wilkinson-Smith made clear. That obviously contains some information um, useful to the defence. Yes. So the police say they weren't picking and choosing what to give up. They did provide things that helped the defence. What's more, some of the things initially overlooked were actually helpful to the prosecution. Did police fixate on David Little? They say they didn't. You follow the evidence, and in this case, uh, we were uncovering a lot of circumstantial evidence for Mr Little, and um, that wasn't the case for the other people who were under investigation. But will all this be enough to save the prosecution? After all, Justice Simon France was so concerned about the disclosure problems that he'd ordered an audit to generate sufficient confidence that a fair trial could take place. Well, that didn't work. When more stuff emerged after the audit, he said he had to seriously consider whether a stay could be granted, even though it was a murder trial. He let the trial proceed, but it seemed like a close call. Then there was the fiasco at the trial with Detective Sergeant Gleason's notebooks. Have we reached the end of the judge's tether? The defence apply once again to have the trial stayed for good. The judge's decision, when it arrives, is extraordinary. But before I tell you about it, 
I think we have to deal with something else you must be asking yourself by now. I know I was. Is this just a one-off case? Or is our whole criminal disclosure system rotten to the core? David Little's case is not the only example of a serious police disclosure failure. It's happened in the cases of some of New Zealand's most famous murder defendants. Arthur Allen Thomas, Dean Wycliffe, Renee Chignall, Neville Walker, Ross Applegren, Mark Lundy, Chris Kahui, Alan Hall. All of them had key pieces of evidence withheld from them. In Ross Applegren's case, that evidence was a confession by someone else. Most of them got their convictions overturned after they found out. All this seems pretty shocking. But it's extremely rare for judges to suggest police or prosecutors acted dishonestly. And a lot of these cases are pretty old. They stem from a time when the rules about criminal disclosure were not as clear as they are today. How much the defence was given often depended on how well they got on with the local prosecutors. But since 2008, we've had a special law called the Criminal Disclosure Act that lays down rules for police about what has to be handed over and when, and says police have to disclose everything that's relevant. Still, David Little's case shows us that it doesn't always work like that. What's going on here? Well, there's no thorough ground-level research on criminal disclosure. So, just like in criminal trials, when facts are missing or murky, we can fill up that uncertainty with stories. In the little case, police say they've learned lessons. They promise to take a wider approach to what's relevant. The catchphrase now is, if in doubt, disclose, as one of the police bosses put it. They've changed their notebook system. There's a new electronic investigative toolkit, so it's easier to keep track of documents for disclosure and they've updated their training at the police college. But when I asked to interview police about how they could be sure they'd fix the problems, they refused. Instead, they gave me their manual. So I read it. But I didn't find anything in there that says, you shouldn't be making value judgments about relevance. If in doubt, disclose. There's nothing that says, there's no blanket rule that you can protect informants' identities. There's nothing that says, Be careful if you're tempted to hold back big chunks of material just because you think it's administrative. In fact, it seemed to me that someone reading this manual could make most of the mistakes that were made in the David Little case all over again. I wrote to police again to ask them to help me understand this. They refused. Police don't like to disclose things. So what did the judge decide in David Little's case? Remember, the defence was asking him to throw the whole case out because the disclosure fiasco meant you couldn't be sure the police didn't have more evidence that they hadn't disclosed, and so no trial could be fair. Justice Simon France didn't shy away from this. He said all the police botches suggested that there will be more informant information that the police failed to record or find or had been wrongly redacted. What's more, he said it was likely to be of the same sort of stuff that had already come out. In other words it probably pointed to Brett being killed by drug associates. Wow. Is that the ballgame? If there's probably undisclosed evidence that someone else did the murder, how can David Little have a fair trial? That's certainly what the defence thought. But the judge didn't. He said the defence already had plenty of material to set up the drug-killing defence. Yes, that defence would be stronger if there was more stuff undisclosed, but it was still quite possible to present this defence. And so the prejudice to David Little wasn't enough to outweigh the powerful public interest in trying a person for murder. The judge pointed out 
that there was nothing to stop the defence from showing how bad the disclosure had been and arguing to a jury that there might well be more that the police hadn't turned over. But the case was going ahead. It was set down for trial in September 2019. If you want to know more about the history of criminal disclosure problems, you can check out our website at rnz.co.nz, where I've written up my research about it. But for now, let's get to the trial, because this time, there's going to be a verdict. Mr Little Meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to sound engineers Blair Stagpool, Phil Benj, Mark Chesterman, Rami Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansell and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Music